Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Smart Cities Chronicles podcast. My name is Adam Beck. I'm your host of the Chronicles, my um, day job executive director at the Smart Cities Council here in the Australia and New Zealand region, um, bringing to you a really exciting episode today, the first in a leadership series that we're doing. Uh, and on the line, I have with me Michael Werrett from Sunshine Coast Council. Michael, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks, Adam. Uh, pleasure to be here with you today. No, thank you for, uh, for joining us. Um, this series is, uh, is looking back and, and having a conversation with our uh, Australian Smart Cities Award winners of 2018, uh, and I'm looking forward to sort of having this conversation. But, Michael, for our listeners that are scattered all over the world, can you, uh, can you give us a sense of who you are and what you do? What's your day job? My day job is the lead for Smart Cities for Sunshine Coast Council. And for those of you who aren't familiar with where we are, uh, we're in the state of Queensland in Australia. As a local government, we're one of the top 10 largest by uh, numbers of um, uh, population, 320-odd thousand. And in Australia, out of the 25 million uh, total population, we're a little bit bigger than the Northern Territory, a little bit smaller than the Australian Capital Territory, and our own uh, region will be the same population as the state of Tasmania in 15 years. So we're dealing with population growth, uh, but we've got um, coastal areas, we've got our, our hinterland and a lot of national parks, so 2,400 uh, square kilometres, which if you know Singapore, you can fit about eight Singapores into our regional area. So it's a, a large area with a lot of things going for it, and we've uh, recently uh, got an international submarine cable confirmed and operational towards the end of the year and an international airport that will go live next year. A lot of things happening and uh, I'd like to be able to cover off a few of those things during the chat today. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of things going on there. Um, we'll get around to those. Let me, um, let me sort of uh, firstly take us back to, uh, to last year, October last year. So uh, Smart Cities Week in Sydney happened for the Smart Cities Council. Um, that was our sort of annual event. Uh, we also had our awards night. Um, you guys picked up a bit of crystal on the night um, for, our, for our listeners, just to sort of give you a sense of what happened. Um, we, had a, we have a number of uh, award categories. Um, they cover things like research and innovation, built environment, uh, digital city services, uh, smart city strategy, le regional leadership. We've also got uh, some other leadership um, awards in there around individuals. So we've got industry leader, government leader and emerging leader. So um, uh, a number of categories and um, you guys sort of took home uh, a number of those. Um, I, you know, when I go through sort of the archives here, um, personally for yourself, you picked up local government leader. Um, the Sunshine Coast uh, Council itself picked up um, uh, regional leadership. Uh, you got a highly commended for digital city services uh and i mean not to detract from your your individual award michael but um leadership city of the year also went to sunshine coast council so, yep. so it, it was and 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 for for for, for sunny coast so um I, i've never really asked you like how did you feel like what was the vibe when you got back and you know you had to unpack the the bag with all those trophies what was the, what was the the feeling uh, look, it was it was certainly a surprise to uh, for Sunshine Coast Council 
uh, to be recognised as we were with, with so many awards and also personally uh, deeply honoured um, to be recognised in that way. And look, it's one of those things where as a regional council, we, we are fairly successful in achieving some great outcomes, but um, smart cities is an emerging area, it's a challenging area. Uh, we, we have to be tenacious to be able to be successful in this space. And um, over the last four or five years, uh, we've uh, been some of the early uh, smart city areas in Australia, but also uh, had some great successes. So uh, it, it was uh, recognised by our mayor and councillors at a council meeting uh, that it was certainly a, a very great achievement for council and the region to be recognised as it was. I, I just want to go back a little bit before we go forward. Um, when we were designing the award program and, and one of the drivers for us was the fact that we acknowledge that there are a number of cities um, that have been sort of added a while and, yep. you know, there, there, there sort of wasn't necessarily a, a discrete program around to recognize smart city leadership. So we, we certainly knew it was time. Um, so, so let's just talk about time for a moment. Um, and briefly sort of share sort of the journey that the council has been on. So you've been at it a while. You were one of those certainly early cities that kind of jumped into this. Can you, can you give me a bit of a, a snapshot of, of those early days? You know, what, what was sort of how, how was it moving into this um, kind of with not many friends around you at the time? Cause it was very, very new and, and not on, a lot of people's radars at the time in this nation, at least. Absolutely. Look, we, um, Richardall City Centre, uh, for people who, who don't know the area, um, we, we're really about 10 to 13 coastal uh, urban areas and the region hasn't had like a central core or central urban heart. Um, but Council's been working towards that for 25 years and Ultimately, uh, in 2012, they uh, moved to actually acquire a golf course. And as, through the process of designing that and relocating the golf course to another location so the natural heart of the Sunshine Coast could be created, they became aware as they, they were going through the urban design process and understanding how to make this new space work as an urban centre, that in what is now the digital century, we needed to make sure that we were well and truly digitally connected. And you note that I'm not using the word smart here, we're just simply recognising that this emerging trend for you know, optic fibre, for, for um, mobile phones, and then all of these new sensors that are becoming available to make real-time information for good decision-making, well, how do we actually go about doing that? And it was through that process, so that started December 2013, so as I sit here with you in June 2019, <laughs> wow. it's nearly six years. Yeah, that's a long time. It's certainly flown. So from that early catalyst that, um, you know, we're creating a, a Merchador city centre with 42 hectares of completely new urban centre. Um, and in that space, you know, we're build, putting optic fibre, we're making sure that our, smart, our, our light poles are smart poles and contain connectivity for a myriad of things, analog and digital, and the list goes on. Um, but the point is that we're doing things, as you say, we couldn't ring up and say, 
to anyone else, how did you do that? Yeah. Uh, and, and that story continues. And I think we're still collectively and individually pushing traditional industries um, like electrical engineers, if any are listening, are probably cringing at what I'm saying, but the need to actually think differently about how power supply into poles that basically have their own switchboards in them and their own connectivity cupboards uh, in them. Um, we need to think differently about how we provide for the specifications and, and how we actually go. The cost of these is more, but the benefits are greater. So how do we price these things? How do we work through the um, operations and maintenance? And even as we speak right now, we have several different branches either not wanting to own or wondering how their ownership and responsibility of these new assets will change how they operate. So it's a long-term process from beginning through to operation and implementation. And um, there's many people who are learning that they've got to change what they're doing and uh, change management becomes part of what we do in smart cities today. Uh, and it's a challenge, uh, but a rewarding one when we get it right. Yeah. Uh, Michael, your, um, l let, me, let me sort of get your personal reflection on your role for a moment. So, you know, if I was to sort of put a couple of things into a blender, you know, agitator, facilitator, negotiator, um, Disruptor. It's it, it sort of um, it's a testament to the organisation that y you've had that tenure in your role for so long. I mean, you know, that's uh, that, that's quite unique. Look, I think there's some great things about Sunshine Coast Council that it's not about um, uh, names, brands. It's not about legislation and regulation. It's not about policy. It's about that preparedness to look at things in, a, um, in, in an open sense. So uh, to characterise that, our annual reports to council allow us to explain um, our learnings from the year. Now, in a bureaucratic government environment, to be able to say these are the things that we um, uh, are going to learn from and improve, and this is how we intend to improve, will you let us adopt that and move forwards? Doing that on an annual basis when an organisation is normally uh, far more rigid and wants to work within uh, structure, we're working in a non-legislated environment. There's very little regulatory control or, on the other hand, maybe there's lots of regulatory control around how um, certain widgets occur uh, or can be deployed. And so navigating through that, um, uh, I certainly have earned a few battle scars. We certainly um, uh, sometimes are referred to something called good tension, which is my way of describing when some people don't like what we're suggesting needs to change mm -hmm. and how we need to move forwards. But one of the, that, that, um, that intangible around the ability for people to actually uh, encourage traditional parts of the organisation to review their their processes, either on a, an individual uh, item and solution or on a larger scale, has been one of the, I think, the testaments to the preparedness of Sunshine Coast Council and region to let us do just that. Um, and it's, it's being able to take a, a helicopter view about where we are today looking to the future and trying to understand what that might be and then backcasting to today to start building those steps. But 
not an easy process, but one that uh, requires a preparedness to to go slow to speed up, which is one of my favourite sayings. Uh, absolutely. Um, Michael, just for a moment, looking outside of your own backyard, um, you've been at it a while. Yep. Um, others are really, you know, moving along now. What, what's, what's your assessment of, of sort of, you know, where the country's come? You know, what, what, what are your feelings? What are your views? You sit back now in the armchair, look across Australia. How do you think we're going in this smart cities digital thing? Look, um, I think if we look internationally and, you know, the Amsterdam and Barcelona are two quick ones out of many internationally that have had the 10 years plus um, leadership in this space, we're still a way behind the maturity that they've reached. But nationally, I think um, from those early formative stages, you know, three, four, five, six, and uh, perhaps in some cases before it was called smart, others have been doing this for some time, um, that the maturity around this, getting to the point where we can do scale deployments is still coming. Okay? Mm. I think the reality around um, being able to say people are doing large-scale deployments of lots of things that are integrated is still a way to come, um, ourselves included. But there's a maturing around the understanding about the why <laughs> and the what yeah, and, and I think increasingly a, a, um, a how question is still being answered. So I think I like the description that I heard used about the Sunshine Coast about 10 or 15 years ago was that it was like a teenager. It was still going through growing <laughs> pains. I uh, didn't quite understand where it was going or what it was intent on doing. And I'd like to use that description now for smart cities in Australia. I think the... It's a movement, it's growing, um, there's, a, there's a certain things that it knows about itself as, as an organise, as, um, you know, disparate people and entities, but it is certainly becoming more of a teenager. And, you know, I think in the same way that it's taken, you know, um, from the Wright brothers' example of their first flight through to the aircraft, the A380 and some of the other Dreamliner and others, um, the speed that we are going to go through that same, you know, hundred odd year process for for aircraft and, and flight, we'll be doing in ten to twelve to twenty years. And I think if we understand that time scale, that it might feel like it's taking a long time. And, and I know vendors are particularly keen to see that rapid deployment, but we're all a little bit scared from a local government perspective around deploying a thousand of something only to find that 10 minutes later, something that is version 2.1, 3.4 um, is going to overtake and basically make that investment null and void. So there's a little bit of caginess around that scale deployment. But I do think that the, uh, the two terms that I'm quite keen around capacity and capability, mm. if you look back 10 years, six years, five years, um, it was not there, or where it was, was in small pockets of people who were holding on to that knowledge uh, and controlling. And I think, you know, um, through your organisation, the Smart Cities Council, the Australian Smart Communities Association and others that are doing a whole range of things, are starting to break down those that controlling nature of people holding on to their knowledge and the sharing um, is creating a that groundswell of uh, awareness 
that's leading to the skilling that needs to happen. And I think we're in the skilling, but the digital dividend that comes through the investment and the commitment to, to we only do it this way moving forwards is not always being adhered to across the region, across, uh, across Australia. Does that sort of make sense? I know I've rambled on a bit there. But no, 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 absolutely. I'd like to pick up um, kind of a point you just mentioned in, in, that, uh, in that part of the discussion around vendors, okay? So um, you've seen a lot. You, you, you've spoken to a lot. You've been, you've yes. been, you've been pitched at a lot. Yes. Um, you, you know, this is, you know, uh, demand side, supply side, public, private. I mean, we can't do it without each other, right? Can you give yeah, me... Yeah, Can you give me... Um, Talk, talk to me about the vendors. Talk to me about, you know, in your time in doing this, you know, what, what the arc of the conversation has been, the level of understanding of what the needs of councils are. You know, where are the vendors at? I mean, they're key. We need to make this work. We need to accelerate it and scale. Yeah. Talk to me about the, the private sector, the vendors, you know, what we Yeah, we have some great experiences with vendors and we have some pretty... Uh, disappointing ones. So, you know, starting with the disappointing side and just explaining, there's a lot of people who um, are used to selling product and um, perhaps at scale, some of the bigger end of town, who seem to think because they've got a name that their product should be picked up, but that they charge a, a price that, um, I guess for me, if we're going to, to install a thousand or something, we need to get a good scale efficiency price and a product that's reliable and, and valid and easily does the access process interface or API connection into our systems. And, you know, there's been a few of the, the bigger end of town have sort of uh, nudged us a few times about things that they, they say we should be picking up and running with. And I think that go slow to speed up has been useful in that respect because a little bit of caution um, and, and testing and we, we thoroughly like to test to understand and then write our procurement, that's our logic, that if we write procurement around something we've never used before, we'll certainly fail going to scale the first time. Then we've had at the other end some really good, smaller, more nimble, and the word responsive, I guess, comes to play where they might have developed a product or are using something that's been developed internationally, but, you know, Australia's... Um, a large continent with a relatively small population and some, some cities around the world are bigger than our population of 25 million. So um, international products don't naturally and necessarily apply to small regional or smaller uh, population densities. But these smaller companies that we've dealt with that are responsive have actually said, okay, well, where are you at and what are you doing and what do you need to know and how can we actually partner and I actually did an interview with the local university recently where we went through the fact that we are doing that on a number of cases and the product development where we partner with those emerging companies is great because we're getting to understand what the capability of their systems are and we're also helping to inform how they might develop without a commitment to procurement the product that they're now releasing to the market. Uh, ride score, the ability for kids to um, use beacon technology on their bikes, it registers them arriving at school, encourages 
parents to be comfortable that their kids have uh, reached school, they get a text message. Now, the technology around that was developed with a Brisbane-based firm in partnership and is now being looked at nationally for deployment. You know, really exciting stuff. Um, with, with another one, and I'm, I'm not mentioning vendors here, but a local firm that came out of Germany that has a dashboard that was good, but now that we've worked with them, uh, the product that's being um, used uh, nationally, um, the version that we're up to now, it's fantastic. You know, so you're hearing me going from early days and development, and that's been the case over the last five or six years is we've been presented by products that are made to look like they're real, only to find that they're mock-ups and that they're still doing their R&D. And I'd rather have somebody honestly talk to me about where their product is and understand that if it's solving a problem I need to solve or to, to help the public have a better experience, then we're more than happy to work with them on that process and derive benefit and ultimately they're then seen as working with ourselves and other local governments and getting benefit. So there's you know, two slides I use with presentations. The first one is uh, to vendors. I talk about the need for them to understand who their customer is. It's, it's funny to say that, but that's yeah. the reality is, please understand who we are and understand our context and what some of our drivers are. It takes a little bit longer. You know, that's about building relationships, about building, uh, understanding how we're fitting in and where we're up to in our procurement cycle. Uh, and the second one is um, to local councils and, and uh, those that are doing the procurement in the public sector is um, how about you actually look to work together, share knowledge, shared experience and actually build that capacity amongst individual staff, whether that's amongst themselves or with vendors because sitting in their own space and trying to do smart cities won't work. Mm. And, you know, throughout my history, you're aware with Broadband Alliance and the Smart Communities Association, it was as much about my involvement in that organisation as it was about sharing and learning, which is, which is what has helped me personally to be in a, um, a more confident position to do what we're doing today. Uh, Michael... You used the word procurement um, a couple of times there. I'd like to pick up on that and and sort of marry that with our earlier sort of discussion around scaling. Yes. Um, you know, there's there's, there's sort of um, there's sort of a, a a common aspiration that we scale, right? And yes. and we feel that you know that, that that's sort of potentially a, a, a next level we need to get to. Um, so I, I just want to talk about. Funding, financing, procurement for the moment. I'm re re really keen to sort of understand, you know, what you guys have done and what you've learned, what you're still yet to do. But um, a an average council, you know, seems to be sort of putting, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm averaging out sort of, you know, what I'm seeing and hearing. But a lot of this is on your balance sheet, right? A lot yeah, of it's in your absolutely. budget, yeah. you know. Yeah. Councils do their, they've got that budget cycle going. Um, is it is it too aspirational to think that we may get to a point where you know the private sector is you know we're leveraging private sector capital you know we're really potentially be you know able to attract that and allow cities to scale and deploy more? 
Let's let's cover that off in two parts, Adam. I think the, the first thing is um, in my uh, team, we actually have almost no budget and it's a really interesting position to be able to sit here and say, and yet over the last five or six years, there's been literally uh, 10 or more million dollars spent in, mm. the, in the region on smart cities, mm. uh, specifically on infrastructure operations and process. So how is it that with no budget, we're managing to get those kind of outcomes? So we're harnessing the way in which council actually operates. Um, most places have capital works programs. We actually have a lot of visiting councils looking at our 10-year capital works program because, you know, and I think this year we're spending at 300 and something million dollars, but typically it's somewhere around the 200 odd million dollars or more. And the thing is that if you're getting to the point where somebody's writing and doing a tender this year, and there's no boat, no line item for smart cities. It's very difficult to actually get them to open the the, the money bucket and add something mm. to it. We've had a few wins in that respect, but the point is that we're actually working four or five years earlier in um, management plans and reviewing and developing concepts and, and master plans for for localities. And we're actually saying we need to be talking to those people at the very early stage so that they can go. How can we improve the ambient temperature of our area? How can we improve the design so that we've got longer life cycle? We understand more about the, the numbers of people using the space. So it comes back to actually solving problems at that point and then adding into their preliminary budgets that then get fed in. And when they um, release some of these places, they don't even mention smart cities. Mm -hmm. It's not about smart cities. And to use David Bartlett, the former Premier of Tasmania's comment, smart cities actually gets exciting when it gets boring. Mm -hmm. Some of what we're doing, we, you know, we're pretty <laughs> pleased with how boring it's getting, <laughs> if I can use that irony. But, you know, I really like David's um, quote there. So the other part around you know, how do we... So we're getting scale because we're building in and using that process and harnessing the, the spending. And... Um, Grant pro, grants programs um, that can be run federally are fantastic, but they'll only ever be the catalyst for wider expenditure, right? So it's great where it happens, absolutely fantastic, but at the end of the day, the real grist for the meal is to actually be doing it as part of what you do, and that's, that's key. So I guess I'd like to deal with the difficult topic about how private sector might be able to help, and I think there's... Um, I've tried it a number of times and, and I've looked at it and I've looked at the ways that others have done it. And, you know, in some places in Australia, public-private partnership is either a, a really good thing or not, okay? <laughs> and so the, the notion and councils, local governments typically own their own assets. They own their own road. They're on their own books. Um, and that control is something that they're very much a case of it's legislated for, it's regulatory, it's how we've done things for decades and decades and decades. So somebody coming in and tapping somebody on the shoulder and saying, I'd like to sell you a 1,000 widgets uh, instead of you buying that type of widget and, um, we'll, and then we'll own it, okay? And, and if we make money out of it, that's okay. And we might do a profit share but anyone who's seen profit shares knows that typically the profit share is like a shred of the total profit. 
but that's because the private sector's taken the risk on, so they get the majority, right? So I, I get that. But you're dealing with a traditional sacred cow there mm. and um, the notion that um, councils will readily, easily change over to this new mode, mode or model, um, I think comes where you have, you have to have the leadership at the top of the organisation uh, do that. Um, you know, Sunshine Coast Council, in the way in which we're building our international airport, we didn't have enough money to build the runway that's necessary to build it. And so we've privatised our airport that we had 100% ownership of. Uh, and without going into percentages or numbers, that public-private partnership is delivering the runway, delivering the, the build and delivering the outcomes that the region needs and at the expense of total ownership. Mm. But we're getting things done through that model. So I think you'll find that there's an appetite where it's at a larger scale, a better tr and traditionally understood piece. Mm -hmm. Cities tends to be lots of things and, and traditionally without picking on any of the major carriers or, or others, if you've got somebody who says, we'll build you smart poles with all of this kit in the top and the bottom, most of the time it's at the expense of you only using their products or the spaces are designed for their products to fit. So how do we get the competitor's product in? Well, that's not the idea, is it? We just want to control that out outcome. So the right partnership can't come where the private sector is using semi-monopolistic control mechanisms to uh, achieve their long-term outcome. So if there's a model that we can see that actually delivers uh, an open access arrangement that allows for uh, us to choose a new Wi-Fi access provider in three years, five years or ten years and upgrade our kit to suit that, the technology will move on, um, the form factor will change, the, you know, how it all fits into those poles and all the rest of it will change. So how do you give confidence to a, a, a public sector that the product that's being installed will cater to and our smart poles like anywhere around Australia and the world, 60 to 100 years we expect them to work for. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, I've, you put me on a, um, you know, on my uh, post and I started talking about something that I'm quite passionate about. Yes. It's uh, getting that nexus between the private sector desire to achieve the, the multi-billion dollar sales and, and the big the big uh, numbers of IoT device sales um, you'll find will be at, at odds with the local government's view on, yes, we need to do it at the right time in the right way because we're serving the public interest. And my personal test every time is I'm a ratepayer. Um, so is this money that I'm spending or my organisation spending good value for my ratepayers' um, uh, expenditure and it, will that experience for the users and the community be sufficiently enhanced by the introduction of the technology and I think if the vendors understand who we are individually and in aggregate they'll be in a much better position to develop solutions that look after the total life cycle uh, and also allow that sort of uh, provision to occur but it's not going to be an easy one to solve yeah yeah I'd like to ramp up 
the conversation on infrastructure for a moment, a project kind of dear to your heart, um, the international broadband submarine cable. Yep. So I, I, I've always been impressed by the diversity, the, the, the buffet of smart cities actions and investments that you've had as a city, right? Everything from autonomous lawnmowers to bin yeah. sensors to lights, building a whole new CBD, greenfield yeah. from scratch, solar yeah. farms. I mean, you, you, you've peppered your investment and your action, you know, across such a broad array. And then you come along and you're plugging in a submarine cable. Talk to me about that in yep. the context of the journey of smart cities, but also what is it and what does it mean? Yeah, look, um, at the national level, um, to have another connection to the national network of telecommunications uh, other than, than Sydney um, delivers uh, redundancy, so national uh, protection, but it also provides an ability for our national networks to not be so dependent on Sydney. Um, and I think just ignoring the Sunshine Coast at that point and just saying to be able to service the national network in that way is a fantastic outcome to, and so a macroeconomic outcome for Australia. Mm. Um, secondly, to then come down to a state level and just see the opportunity for a little bit of, uh, you know, blues and maroons, uh, competitive nature between Sydney and Queensland, that's a fantastic thing, right? Um, and then selfishly down at the Sunshine Coast level and going, one of our risks is that that cable comes in, goes straight to Brisbane, and then for us to benefit has to come back to the Sunshine Coast. So getting the ecosystem or getting the system of how this actually operates, not just um, for the East Coast of Australia, but also Queensland and the Sunshine Coast. So our building of um, a cable landing station. So normally they go into data centres. We didn't have one here. So we had to opt to build a cable landing station. So I describe that as in its simplest sense, we've built for four cables to come into the Sunshine Coast. So we're effectively saying to Australia, we're the alternate to Sydney because it's gonna be cheaper to come here than anywhere else because we've got this infrastructure. So that's our international terminal. And if people think of it as airlines have international terminals and domestic ones, and this is a international data terminal. Uh, we've got ultimately one to begin with and then four over time um, connections that we can make. But then we've actually got a domestic terminal downstairs and in, in communications parlance, it's a point of presence. But for most of the folk, it's about having domestic carriers connecting into the international connection. Mm -hmm. And then for us, it's immediately adjacent to our Marichador City Centre, which is coming live towards the end of this year, and it has its own ducting and its own fibre. So every single lot in Marichador will be connected to the international and domestic terminals right next to it. And as data centres are invested in the Sunshine Coast and, and built, so too will that network be connected into them. So when you think from an ecosystem, what would you really like to have to create a digital city and a digital region. International connectivity, mm -hmm. fantastic. National domestic connectivity, that quite frankly, uh, without talking about actual prices, the Sunshine Coast pays something like um, 10 times more than Brisbane does for connectivity to Sydney, okay? So we're basically going from Brisbane to the Sunshine Coast 
costs a hell of a lot more. It's treated like a region, right? At the periphery. Yeah. It costs more to be on the periphery rather than being cheaper. So we're actually setting about making sure that Sunshine Coast becomes an equitable investment from telecommunications perspective, as well as providing the ability for international uh, firms to invest here and say, I'd like an international connection, please. Well, here's the person to talk to. That's where your fibre connection will go to. And through your commercial arrangements, you can set that up. And, uh, you know, we've also had to, um, I guess, adjust or reset the community's expectation in the same way that you and I book flights um, and we get on a, a Qantas or whatever, whatever um, firm airline that we use. Uh, when we use carriers, when we sit at our desktop, we don't really care how most of our uh, connection internationally occurs. We just want it to happen and quickly. And so most people on the Sunshine Coast won't use the international cable necessarily, but as our, our um, alternate uh, ecosystem and network into the um, Brisbane and beyond to Sydney grows, so too will the way the carriers actually switch either Sydney or the Sunshine Coast as the exit point or the entry point. And as that occurs, the local community will see the direct benefits. Um, so that's, I guess, the, the longer term view of, of what we're seeking to achieve here. But right now, we're actually, at, I described as we're at minus five. We're not even at zero. Mm. Our ecosystem is at minus five and we've got to catch up ground and overtake uh, all of that capacity. And that's why we're building the cable landing station right next to the Richfield City Centre, building the ducting into it, putting fibre to each of the lots so that anyone, it's a menu of options. We'll have uh, NBN providing, you know, the high-speed uh, business-grade Ethernet and the standard. We'll also have um, the ability for those businesses to use redundant connections to domestic carriers and internationally and data centres. So that smorgasbord means you don't have to be in Sydney and pay $1.2 million for your house or your unit. You can be here for half that price. Staff can go and surf and come back at lunch. It's it's no. not a it's not a bad part of the world, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, Michael, probably probably our last question now. Um, you've been at it for a while. You've worked on you know multiple projects, achieving multiple outcomes. You know the the, uh, the submarine cable just now. You've been discussing. Um, what what does uh, what does sort of a you know a, a a real kind of leadership city, but you as an individual look forward to over the next couple of years? What are you excited about? Adam, I've enjoyed uh, a wonderful opportunity to work on a number of projects, and you know when I look back over the last ten years and beyond, the opportunity to work for for a large council and have a level of specialisation that my role has, and a team that works across. Uh, it's just fantastic and it's, it's, a, it's a real joy to have that opportunity. So looking forwards, and I guess I'm always looking at, at the horizon and where the opportunities are, we're moving more to a mode where we're saying, yep, we're focused on a number of different um, uh, things and areas, um, but rather than actually complicating things, we're looking to simplify them. So we've got our process, uh, our design gateway for taking ideas and filtering them through. So 
350 ideas have filtered through a process of design gates to the point where we had 35 or more um, solutions at play um, in different levels of scale and deployment. That's fantastic. Um, getting the connectivity piece between the IoT devices out there um, and in, the ability to work on those um, with carriers or to actually create and catalyze new carrier options for submarine cable and the other elements is a key to uh, central piece. And then the, the horizon, not the horizon or the very near future is we've done some cool things with data, but we're at the beginning of the data journey. Okay, so I think if we say IoT and devices, we've got a process, we're comfortable with that. We've got some great work happening from wireless to, to optic fiber and everywhere in between with connectivity. So connecting the sensors uh, into a data lake or warehouse or whatever you want to call it, but productizing data for internal consumption, for productizing for region businesses, chambers of commerce and others to be able to use. And I use the analogy there of, you know, to create a product in terms of data that's like, you know, local government love the term potable water quality. We know we can get it. It's readily available. It's not particularly expensive, but there is a price because there is a you know, small access or um, so the access to the local swimming pool is $2.60. It's not making the council a lot of money. It's just covering the cost of having the mm. pool. Right? Mm. So access to potable data that's relevant to your particular local area interest in a productized uh, version that's secure, safe, and has qualities about it that are known and you can rely on. Um, that's, um, I guess, the next piece. And where it makes sense, and you know, I'll put a number of question marks at, around it, that if we're turning that potable data uh, through a number of refinements and improvements into potable beer data, we're <laughs> evaluating, we pay more for it. I don't know about you, but paying eight, you know, eight bucks for a stubby at the pub seems to be the new standard. That's a hell of a lot more than getting a glass of water at the pub, right? So. Mm when we do things that have a value added to them, then how might we, under the right circumstances, commercialise that data? And what does that mean? And I think, you know, again, that's the example of the public-private partnership, but it has to be done under the, under the terms and under the basis that we're about achieving outcomes for the region without selling short our own community and the data that's been collected for them and on behalf of them and managed for them. Uh, you know, we've got that dual responsibility as a public sector, um, and so commercialisation under the right circumstances is where we get to have either, you know, beer, data beer, or a data champagne. Um, and, and we'll come up with, to me, in the same way that alcohol has lots of varieties and products, that's what we need to do is to productize data so that the individual user gets and uses and consumes at the appropriate price a reliable, safe and consistent product. Um, so that's, you know, where I think we need to go uh, and develop into over the next three years. Well, well I'm excited. A, I'm excited to hear that. B, I'm more excited to sort of see it play out. Um, and given the track record and the journey you've been on, uh, I can only imagine that, um, you know, you, you're going to do a good job at this. So, potentially looking forward to getting you back and hearing hearing more about uh, 
more about that in sort of six months time or so. But Michael, um, got to leave it there. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Also, uh, you know, on behalf of, you know, the industry here in Australia, sincere congratulations, uh, not, o- not only on the awards that you won last year, you know, very, uh, very worthy recipients, um, recognising that, uh, that leadership uh, and excellence. Um, excited to see things going forward. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, it's a pleasure. You know, it's, it's an honour to be able to be in this role and, and, and an organisation, but also actively involved nationally in something where there's a lot of change, a lot of challenges, but uh, for me personally, it's a hell of a lot of fun as well. So thank you. Not a problem at all. So our guest was Michael Werrett from Sunshine Coast Council in Queensland, leading the smart cities efforts up there. Uh, For our listeners that aren't subscribing to the Chronicles, you can do so through your usual podcast platforms. You can always go to our website, smartcitieschronicles.com. If you want to reach out, send us a note, ask a question, give us some feedback. You can do so chronicles at anz.smartcitiescouncil.com. The first of our leadership series. We look forward to bringing you more, but for now we're signing off. Uh, Have a fantastic week and we'll talk to you soon.